Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Ms. Wolf, I want to make sure you understand the purpose of this hearing. Yeah, I got turned in by some eggheads at the Pointer Institute or the Pew Research or some shit. And do you know for what? Yeah, they say bullying. That's correct. The allegations concern your remarks over a period of years to a producer named Tucker Ives. Do you know this individual? Know him? I'm the one who beat God into him. I'm the reason he's not a total b- today. According to the allegations, you addressed Mr. Ives for a period of many days as Hannah Jaffe Walt. Is this true? Yeah, maybe once or twice. I don't know. I, I get them mixed up. The records here indicate you called him that once every 15 minutes every day for two months. Uh, That might be right. I don't exactly journal. You know why? Because journaling is for You also called him Ophabia Quist Arctin. Yeah, I say a lot of things. You know, I was trying to toughen him up. You people don't know what it's like. You've never even set foot in a public radio studio. You've never been through a pledge drive. It's like a war zone out there. We also have reports that you Ashbrooked, Mr. Ives. What does that mean, to Ashbrook someone? Oh, we don't talk about that. Why not? Because there's this culture inside public radio, and from the outside, f***ers like you would never understand why it's necessary for certain conventions to exist, okay? Mr. Ives says you made it impossible for him to do his job, and that he is now depressed. Did he say that? I'll give him something to be depressed about. Give me that. Ms. Wolf, I suggest that you return my gavel. You want it back? Here! Ow! I can't believe I have to sit here and take this. When you people are done with public radio, it'll be a place where everybody's polite and reasonable and reads a lot of books, and one of America's greatest institutions will have been turned into a... into a, uh, something like the show you're about to hear, hosted by that girly man, cream puff, college boy, panty-waist, marigold-hugging, wuss bunny, crybaby f***er, Colin McEnroe. <laughs> All right, that's uh, Kion Wolf, the Richie Incognito of public radio, apparently. We are going to talk uh, much more seriously today about about what, about what sports, and specifically football, has kind of turned into. We have um, a really interesting group of panelists here, or guests, by the time I introduce them. They're also interesting, and we have four of them. The show will be over by the time I introduce everybody, but that doesn't matter. Uh, we are still excited. Anissa Ramirez is a scientist, science popularizer, and co-author of Newton's Football, the Science Behind America's Game. Emily Bazelon is a senior editor at Slate and the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy, released this month in paperback. I have my hardback here in studio. Uh, Megan Greenwell is a senior editor uh, for Features at ESPN the magazine. Pam Ward is a play-by-play announcer for ESPN. Uh, Megan and Pam are here in studio with me in Hartford down in New Haven at the Yale studio uh, are Anissa Ramirez and and Emily. So um, we're going to be talking a lot about football today, Um, not to the exclusion of all other sports, but football seems to be uh, where a lot of the the smoke and fires are right now. And um, 
as I said in, in before the news, you know, football has really been through this incredibly horrible time where we've uh, become more and more aware of the the impact of concussions and the degree to, the degree to which the NFL for a long time effectively stonewalled and suppressed scientific research uh, about concussions and what they were doing to players. Uh, we, we went from there to this uh, horrible scandal of bullying in the Miami Dolphins locker room. From there to stories of Darren Sharper uh, and in a former NFL defensive back who's now accused of raping seven different women in four different states and drugging them beforehand uh, to most recently the story of Ray Rice, uh, a running back in in the NFL. Um, There's video of him dragging the unconscious body of his fiancée off of an elevator after uh, apparently having punched her on the floor of a casino uh, minutes earlier. Uh, So these these are sort of, I mean, times when football really looks like this completely different universe from the one that most of us live in, except that once a week during one season of the year, a lot of us turn on our TV sets and watch these people. Um, and so, Anissa Ramirez, one of the things you do in your book is really look at the whole history of football and look at the whole history of football's brutality and football's violence uh, from from 1905 when, when one player died on the field to, to 2005 when uh, another player, Al Lucas, uh, died in, I think, an arena football game. Uh, just how incredibly violent and lethal this game can be. Um, and, and so maybe you can, first of all, set this up for us a little bit. I mean, looking back at the origins of football, it was so bad in the early days that, that none other than Theodore Roosevelt stepped in and tried to make it better. Tell us that story. Well, football has always been a sport of collision, and it started off as a very brutal sport. It was controlled chaos or it was controlled war- warfare. And at some point, uh, there were young men who were actually dying. Uh, One year, there was 18 young men that died from the game of football. Now, the game looked very different from what we play today. Uh, There wasn't a pass. Um, Also, they weren't wearing any helmets. And so that's when Teddy Roosevelt stepped in to uh, institute some different plays and see how it can be wrang- uh, how the game could be uh, wrangled back in to be a little bit more controlled chaos. And, and so one thing that did happen there, okay, at, at that moment, there are some pretty massive paradigm shifts in football. I mean, it really, you know, what, what happens as, as a result of Roosevelt's intervention and the formation of some of these organizations and changes in the rules. I mean, football did become a different kind of game at that moment. Would, would that be fair to say? Oh, yeah. There's always some unintended consequences when you have these rule changes. So uh, the, the pass was instituted, and so that's a different game than what it was before. Um, and also, um, Teddy Re- Roosevelt put in some institutions to make the game more safe, and a couple of decades later, they, this idea of having a football helmet came out, and so the game also changed because of that. And one of the things that we propose in the book is that later on, when the face mask came along, it actually made the game more dangerous, even though it was intended to make the game more safe, because at that point, then players started to use their head to tackle, and now that's what started the, uh, that started the beginning of this uh, concussion epidemic that we have today. Towards the end of the book, though, you really look at some people who are trying way on the margins uh, to, to do some innovations. You, you uh, write about a guy who has a terrific record of developing, I think, motorcycle or race car helmets who, who really does feel like he's invented a safer but far more expensive helmet. You talk about a guy who's invented a different kind of tackling, which seems to be every bit as effective as the conventional wrap em up style of tackling, but a lot safer for both the tackler and the tackle But it, it does seem as though those guys can't get a lot of traction. I mean, their their changes aren't being necessarily implemented by anybody. Um, and it, what's your sense? What, what's what's the inertia about in in football? Well, you're right. There's two there's two 
candidates of people who are trying to make some serious efforts into making the game safer uh, that we propose in the book. Uh, one is Bobby Hosea, who has a new style of tackling where he he has students tackle without using their heads. They essentially take their head out of the way during the tackle. And some st- audience members may say, okay, well, that's going to be a less effective way of tackling. But his star student, Deshaun Golson, is like one of the hardest tacklers. He just knows how to do it in a safer way. Also, we talk about Bill Simpson, who's created a new helmet. And Bill Simpson's not a nobody. He's a Hall of Famer in, in the sports uh, car, uh, excuse me, NASCAR arena. And those players or those drivers have to undergo conditions that are far more fast and much more brutal in terms of collisions. So he's a respectable person to come up with an idea for how to make a safer helmet. Neither one of these guys can get an audience with the NFL. When we spoke to them, they just were completely frustrated with that. And so that's why they're actually focusing on youth, because uh, they're a little bit more amenable to what they're talking about. And as you, the point you make in the book also is that it's really important with youth, because in some ways, neurologically, they're more, the youth are more vulnerable anyway. I mean, things, that can, things haven't fully developed in their brains that can be injured, kind of aborning, uh, in a way that's even more serious, possibly, than, than the way they get injured uh, later on when the myelin and stuff like that's more fully developed. Um, I do, I probably that's absolutely assume. correct. Oh, I'm amazed. It's absolutely correct. It sounds like the kind of thing <laughs> I would get wrong. Um, Pam, Pam Ward, you know, you've you've covered this, um, and and so one of the things that we we hear all the time is that that level of violence and brutality, the hard hit. Uh, is inextricable from the appeal and the fundamental nature of football. I mean, for years, Monday Night Football is part of their their opening sequence. It concluded with two helmets smashing together and exploding, which pretty much said it all. Uh, this is, of course, the kind of thing that that we now know is is you know a, a pathway to the kind of encephalopathy that we're, we're now reading about. But I mean, how true does that seem to you that there's just no way to take that nature of football and 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 ratchet it down a little bit? Well, I think you can ratchet it down. It, taking the head out of out of the equation is something that has to be done. And it, but part of the problem is the National Football League, especially, isn't admitting that there is a problem. And I, when I was doing, I did play-by-play for eleven years. And one of my partners was Chris Spielman, who was one of the greatest. He was a great tackler and uh, one of the best defensive players. And he would always talk about how he was taught not to put your head in there. But uh, but the violence is is a part of it. And a lot of a lot of especially men who watch it love it. And it's not just the guys who are tack- who are getting tackled who are getting hurt. It's the tacklers themselves. And the National Football League actually is uh, coming up with a program to try to reach out to moms because so many mo- mothers and, and, and fathers as well don't even want their kids to play football anymore. So there's fewer coming in at the youth level. And we work with people at ESPN who played professional football, and they have said, either on the air or off, that they wouldn't let their sons play football now because it is so violent. So I, I think there is a way to take certainly the head out of the game, but the violent hits will always be part of the appeal. Megan, do you think uh, journalism about football, sports journalism, has changed a little bit, though? I mean, I, I think there was a, lo- a long period of time when the sports journalism that I consumed accepted as given pretty much all of the conventions and pretexts that, that an NFL executive would subscribe to, too. And I, I feel like there's a little bit more of a divergence now, that it's okay to raise these questions. I I think that's right. And it's something that we as sports journalists grapple with all the time. How do you cover a sport that people really love and it's an important part of their lives while still covering the real issues that are brought up here? Um, And I think that there's a divide between um, there are two different camps in sports journalism. There absolutely is the we are fans, we represent fans camp um, that doesn't really want to deal with the 
concussion epidemic, the bullying culture, anything like that. And then there's um, a more intellectual, for less lack of a better word, um, strain of sports journalism that really wants to delve into these issues. Um, at the magazine, we've done a lot of investigative pieces, but um, that is not necessarily the culture in all of sports journalism. So in the next segment, uh, Emily Bazelon, we're going to talk a lot about what you've been writing about recently, which is uh, the sort of the, the, the NFL sex problem, basically the, the problem with violent, aggressive and abusive sex. But, you know, just to sort of stay with what we're talking about right now, even in writing Sticks and Stones, writing about bullying, um, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the Dolphins bullying culture also. But um, I, I'm wondering even whether you hear echoes uh, of a culture that makes bullying possible. In other words, just that whole notion that there are certain spheres, certain places where uh, where the normal rules of society are suspended uh, and, and where, you know, violence is, is really sort of granted a very special place. And football really is maybe unique among all activities. I mean, first of all, as somebody who maybe doesn't cover football all the time, how weird is this whole conversation for you? It's not that weird, uh, but I do think there's this essential dilemma in football, which is that athletes have to be incredibly aggressive on the field in order to do their jobs, and then we expect them to turn that off as soon as they get off the field. And I think that's a reasonable expectation. The game's future depends on them successfully making that transition. But I do think the game and the NFL have not sufficiently wrestled with the challenge there and how to support athletes to make sure that even with all these problems with concussions, um, for example, and the violence of the sport, that it also is a humane sport to work in and that the right message is being sent about football to college and younger students, high school students who are playing the game. You know, we wanted to have the show be about women who are writing and commenting meaningfully uh, about this essentially male sport, although not exclusively male sport. And, um, you know, something that uh, Pam said, uh, Anissa, made me, me think also. She said she mentioned something about moms. Uh, and, and I do sort of wonder about the input that women can have into this conversation. It almost reminds me a little bit of uh, there are many people who think that Vietnam, that the tide of public sentiment uh, in Vietnam turned when Mothers Against the Draft was formed, when suddenly you had a, a nationwide network of women who are concerned about their sons being sent over to this questionable war front. Uh, and, and I'm wondering about the kind of input that women and moms and, and wives of NFL players have had or, or are having now in the kind of conversations about making the, the game safer. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I'm a scientist and I was kind of minding my own business and this project of writing a book about football fell on my lap. And I thought it was a great opportunity to just explain to people what a concussion was. And then that would empower people to be able to make better decisions. So my secret wish is that moms and wives and partners and care to, uh, people who care for people who are playing f football learn more about why footballs were, uh, football helmets were not designed to mitigate concussions so that they can have this important conversation. Because I think it's going to have to be a groundswell to, to fix this. We don't have a Teddy Roosevelt who's going to come from the top down to fix this. Uh, there's people who have solutions and they can't get an audience with the NFL. So we all have to kind of be the solution. So that's really my hope for the book. We're going to take a break. We're live here in the afternoon. If you're listening, you want to call in about any of the things we're talking about. Uh, the number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You may tweet us or follow us at WNPR. Colin, we'll be back after this.
And we're back. We're talking about sports, specifically football. I think it's going to consume most of our attention here, but not exclusively. Anissa Ramirez is with us. She's a scientist uh, and co-author of Newton's Football, the Science Behind America's Game. Emily Bazelon, author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying, Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. She's a senior editor at Slate. Megan Greenwell, senior editor at ESPN, the magazine. Pam Ward is a play-by-play announcer for uh, for ESPN. Um, you know, just before we get into some of the uh, the issues of, of sex and bullying and violence um, in the game. I wanted to sort of get one last point about the thing we were talking about uh, in the first segment, uh, Anissa, because one one of the other points you make is that there is, it's not as though we could consume untold, unchecked, limitless, ceilingless amounts of violence in football, right? That That in fact, they're threading some kind of needle, that if it gets too bad, too violent, you really do begin to turn away a larger fan base. Absolutely. And so we feel that football has entered what we call uh, what's what we call the uncanny valley. Uh, Uncanny valley is when things become too real. So uh, sometimes children have a strange reaction to clowns and they'll start to cry because they think that something's off. Well, there's this this concept called the uncanny valley where uh, roboticists uh, made robots that look more and more human like. And when they got to a certain point, they looked really strange and everybody had a strange reaction because they looked too real, but they looked off. And we feel that the same thing is going on with football. That's ex- it's exciting and it's filling, feeling our need, filling our need rather for um, to have warriors who are in battle. But when we see someone get hurt and they don't, and they have to be carried off the field, or if when we hear about people having uh, degenerative diseases, we this game it doesn't seem like a game anymore. So I think that's what football has entered the uncanny valley. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the, the current stories. Uh, and Emily, you've been writing about them for Slate Magazine, the story of Darren Sharper, who's now accused uh, of at least uh, seven different rapes in four different states and of drugging his victims beforehand. Um, that's quick on the heels of this has been the story of Ray, Ray Rice apparently punching his fiancée in a casino and uh, knocking her unconscious, dragging her off an elevator later. Um, these kinds of stories, if you've followed football for a long time, they're not that unfamiliar, unfortunately. Almost any team any team that you can root for has harbored in its midst uh, people who've done these kinds of things. And, and it, it's almost something that fans learn to look past or factor into their calculations a, a little bit. And I guess one question I would ask is, does that make football America's weirdest workplace in this regard, that somehow or other these businesses, these organizations, learn to kind of swallow um, – a guy who's who's basically a sex offender or a wife beater or some other form of anti-woman cr- criminal. Well, I think this is related to what Anissa was just saying, that there's reality here, but then also this kind of disconnect where – you're right. Fans do look past a lot of these egregious crimes and violations, and fans need to stop looking past them in order to put pressure on the NFL and on the game to change. You know, I have two boys. They're 11 and 14. They are big football fans. They love to read the sports section. I am pretty horrified by some of what they're learning in the sports section every day. It is a place of violence and girlfriend beating and a lot of drug use. And I think, you know, football and other sports need to take a close look at what kind of modeling they're doing for kids who are such an important audience for them. You know, Megan, 
um, as a woman and as a woman who's a sports journalist, I mean, it, first of all, I, I as a sports fan, I'm very familiar with the thing that I'm talking about. I'm a Packers fan. Every once in a while, the Packers will get a guy who's pretty clearly a bad apple. And I do this whole sort of cognitive adjustment, like, well, how, how bad exactly is he? Is he so bad? Because he's a pretty good cornerback, too. So, you know, how bad is he? How much do I have to hate him? How much do I have to reject him? Um, and and I think I, I think almost every fan does this, but as a woman covering this, I, I mean, how do you process that phenomenon? I mean, it's very much the same calculus. It's sort of like, well, yeah, but this is my team, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm now mostly in the role of a journalist, so it's I'm interested in these stories, covering these stories, covering um, whether or not the culture of football will ever change. Um, it's incredibly um, fertile ground for a journalist, but I'm also a sports fan, and I have conversations with my friends all the time where it's sort of like, yeah, I don't know. Can I justify watching it anymore? Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates at The Atlantic wrote a great piece a couple of years ago about why he was just not watching football anymore. It had gotten too morally complicated for him. And that's why, you know, I have a real position of luxury where I can write about these issues in um, and and edit stories about these issues in a smart, complicated way. Um, But I've certainly editing those stories has certainly lessened my enjoyment of the game. This past year was the first time until the Super Bowl. I didn't watch a single football game all year for the first time in my life. Do you think as a woman journalist, you're a little less likely to roller skate past some of these issues? I mean, I feel like male sports writers, particularly if they're beat sports writers or beat um, journalists uh, covering a team or covering a sport, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, so the Minnesota Vikings had like this sex boat and they had prostitutes and whatever. You know, let's keep going. Uh, Do you think as a woman journalist you cover it differently? I'm not sure how much of it has to do with gender and how much of it has to do with just not being a beat reporter. You get inured to this type of thing. And it's true that most beat reporters are men and they spend all of their times in these locker rooms. And it is easier for them to say, you know, well, yeah, but he's actually a really good guy. And I don't think that's because they're men, but I think that's because they spend a lot of time with these people. And it's very that's a thing you say about your friends. You know, my friend may have done this really bad thing, but he's generally a good guy. Um, So I think there's a lot of value to having sports journalists that come out, come from with, come from outside of sports journalism to get them covering these issues. I think the work that Emily has done is, has been amazing in this regard because it's a non-sports journalist writing about the football bullying culture. Um, I don't come out of sports journalism. This is my first ever job in sports journalism. And I think I do bring a different eye to that, maybe not because of my gender, but because I have different experiences. Um, in our third segment, by the way, we're going to talk about the pushback that happens when uh, when journalists start to write about this stuff. Just reading some of the comments appended to Emily's articles is uh, is an education right there. But we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Pam Ward, let's, you know, you sort of are a beat reporter or have been a beat reporter to a certain degree anyway, doing play-by-play football and, and, and reporting on college football. Um, which a lot of people feel is sort of the the crucible where a lot of these characters are formed. You know, they get away with an awful lot of stuff uh, at that level. Is it is it 
hard for journalists covering football on a regular basis to ask these fundamental questions about character, uh, about the kinds of issues that Emily's been writing about lately. Yeah, and uh, first off, as a lifelong Vikings fan, we'll never be close, Colin. But we'll, <laughs> we'll let that go. Yeah. Um, yeah and as a, a play-by-play person, we have access, and we have had, and I personally have had conflicts because at ESPN we have a, a news division, especially in the last few years. Like we'll go into a game, and there will be an incident, not just with football. There, obviously, it, it's it cuts uh, across all sports. And the news division will want us to go in and ask these players or ask these coaches questions about if a kid got in trouble or if the coach did something nefarious or allegedly nefarious. And we have different relationships. We just want to know what their strategy is to try to win the game and try not to burn our bridges in that way. So you, we do have to kind of toe the line a little bit. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, there have been instances where, we, where I've heard stuff that, you know, players that we have talked to go out and do something and – I always like to say now that um, because we don't know these people, these are people you, know, you think you know them, even if you're a beat writer. Uh, there are times when I would say, you know, I, I, I would never, it would take a lot to surprise me now. I'll be disappointed to hear maybe that somebody did something, but to be surprised, absolutely not. Uh, I'm also wondering, um, you know, we're, we're all watching now the, the drama of Michael Sam. This young man plays for Missouri. He's a draftable NFL player. He's, he's come out as a gay man. Um, and, um, you know, yesterday I was uh, talking to Mike Pesca uh, on the show, Pam, and I was talking about Jason Collins, uh, and I was talking about him as the first gay pro athlete or something like that. And he kind of stopped me. He said, no, he's the first gay pro athlete in a male sport. Uh, and I mean, if he put some other qualifiers in, in there and I suddenly realized, oh, that's probably true. Like there are probably a lot of gay or lesbian WNBA players. I don't know who they are. I don't, I don't think anybody really cares that much one way or another that somehow or other this issue when it's applied to women's sports it gets care it gets covered in a very different way and and not as heightened and, and hypertense as we are yeah i think a lot especially uh, you mentioned the wnba i think there's almost a supposition that all of them are gay so <laughs> right. it's and work backwards whereas in men's sports oh they can, none of them are gay because they're these macho guys who go out and you know what and, and do whatever but yeah it's 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 interesting, and, and obviously there have been gay athletes in men's sports forever. It's just that Collins, it was the first active player. Michael Sam, the first active player to do it. Jerry Smith, the old Redskin, uh, back in the day, uh, it turned out he was a terrific football player, and his teammates knew. But the whole culture, too, the way the media covers things has changed. Because in Washington, I grew up in Washington, and um, I think everybody, not everybody, but it, it was not a, a big secret that Jerry Smith was gay, but nobody talked about it. Nobody wrote about it. So things things have changed. And it, I think it is more acceptable. I think generally speaking, people don't care, but there's always this media frenzy. And when Michael Sam was at the Combine the other day, it was uh, he was he was a very popular interview for someone who is not going to be probably a first round pick or maybe even second round pick. You know, Emily, um you know, as as the Michael Sam story was developing, one of the things that that unnamed general managers were saying in the first blush of uh, of press coverage about this, uh, a number of general managers and other kinds of league officials, to say nothing of a player or two, even speaking on the record, were sort of saying, "Well, I don't know if we want him on our team. It's kind of a distraction. It'd be a distraction, be a problem. We'd have a hard. It's not that we have anything against gay people, but it'd be a hard thing uh, absorbing them into our work environment, and it really would create the word distraction kept being used over and over." Again, I, I can see that Megan has something she wants to say about this, too. But I was l- listening to one of my 
one of my several favorite podcasts on Slate. Um, and, I mean, obviously, I love Political Gab Fest, but uh, this is Hang Up and Listen. And the aforementioned Mike Pesco was saying, wow, the NFL is so special. You know, it's the last workplace in America that could claim it couldn't absorb a gay employee. And, and I guess sort of maybe putting on your, your uh, legal affairs hat for a second. I mean, I, I asked this question once before, but I mean, the NFL is sort of defining itself in a weird way as, a, as an employer, unlike any, um, any other, no employer in America would dare say something like that anymore, except somehow or other it's sort of okay in football to say, yeah, I don't think we could really handle a gay employee. Thanks, though. Well, to give you a straight-up legal answer, we don't have a national law that protects against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And so the NFL is not the last haven for this kind of discrimination. There are other employers. I think, though, this is a barrier that football is going to get past, and it's going to happen fast. You know, look at the military. Everybody thought the military couldn't handle openly gay service members. They had to be in the closet. We had don't ask, don't tell. It was going to ruin the cohesion of military units to have gay members, gay people serve openly. Completely not true. We end Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The military, you know, carefully takes a look at its own, at the impacts of ending that policy, and everything is fine. And I think once football turns this corner and it ceases to be a way to bond, to be rampantly homophobic, which is part of what we've seen in this recent Dolphin scandal, how common that kind of language and behavior is. Once football gets past that, it's going to embrace these gay players because football is really good at inclusion in the locker room once it's able to shed some of its biases and prejudices. Um, I'm going to interject yeah, here. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, as, a, as a person who's African-American, these, these <coughs> notions of distraction, this is what Jackie Robinson had to hear mm. as well. And barring hockey, where, where, are, they, where are there no African-American players? Uh, you know, games would not be as exciting as if, if it wasn't for the contributions of people who are African American. It's going to be the same thing for talent that's also of other minorities. The whole one of these issues with America is that there's always the other, and there's always someone that we have to not like. And if for a long time it was African Americans. Now it's gays. It's 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 really backward thinking. And uh, the NFL should be a leader and 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 fix their mindset because they're they're role models for all of America and for kids as well. It's amazing how the grammar and syntax of these conversations they, it just repeats themselves. I mean, in all the ways that you're talking about, Anissa, but also um, I actually I was doing talk rate, commercial talk radio when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was being debated nationally. And uh, you would be amazed at the number of callers, each one of whom seemed to think he was saying something massively original, would call me up and say, well, they're going to have to take showers together. They're going to have to take showers together. And so to hear right. this come up again from the guy from the New Orleans Saints and all, they're going to have to take showers. Apparently showers are this incredibly fraught experience. <laughs> I just take them to get clean, but uh, apparently other people use them for other things. But Megan, I saw you wobbling your head when I was talking about this distraction argument with well, Michael Sam. Well, the thing I would add is that um, that coded language, and Anissa is absolutely right to point out how coded it is, um, it's also a complete abdication of responsibility by the general managers. That's what struck me when I was reading these quotes. First of all, they were anonymous quotes. These are guys who can't even stand behind what they're saying. And these are literally the people who make hiring and firing decisions. So if people aren't accepting a player in your locker room, you more than any other single human have the ability 
to change that culture. So I understand that players, you know, cliques form. There's a locker room culture that the, the general manager doesn't necessarily have a lot of control over. But when you are the person making hiring and firing decisions, you get to decide what stays and what goes. And so I think there's been a lot of pressure to um, on on players to step up as leaders. But I think we absolutely need to be putting as much, if not more, pressure on general managers and coaches to be the leaders and say, absolutely, anybody who's going to mess with Michael Sam is going to just be off our team. All right. The Packers said, by the way, uh, Pam, that they would take Michael Sam. Um, yeah. I, have, I have a feeling the Vikings did not say that. Oh, I don't, who knows? <laughs> um, let me let me have a call from Glenn just because he's been on hold for quite a while. I want to come back after Glenn to do a little bit more on the on the Miami situation. But uh, So, Glenn from Granby, uh, what's on your mind right now? Hi, Colin. Uh, this is kind of a topic that's really close to my heart. Um, I'm a youth sports coach. I've been a youth sports coach for about eight years now. Coached my kids, coached, uh, you know, people in the, my town's kids. Uh, I just want to start out by saying I think uh, monsters are, you know, are made. They're not born. And we are making monsters. And I think it starts out in youth sports. And uh, it moves on if your children are into travel sports, which is an expensive way of uh, teaching your kids to basically win at all costs and be poor sports in some cases. And then it goes on into high school and then into college. And, of course, you have the NFL, which uh, I used to watch games all the time. I I have pretty much stopped watching them. Um, But it brought this all home to me is that uh, one of my children was seriously hurt a couple of years ago, and she's still having problems. Um, I, I think there's just we've just gone over the edge uh, with uh, the sports culture in this country and everything else, uh, if you're involved in sports, all the things that make life important and the things you should be teaching our children and we should be teaching our children, they're taking a back seat to the win at all costs, to the serious you know, uh, sort of aggressiveness that we see not only in the actual playing of the games but in the advertising that pays for it and in the fans and in the stands, and it's just, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really kind of leery of feeding my kids into this mill and uh, what's going to get spit out at the other end. They're very athletic children. The kids I coach are very good. I try to do a good job. I'm just afraid of what's waiting for them at the other end. And if it's what's happening now in, you know, the NFL, I, I would rather pass on that. All right, thanks for your call. Um, I, th- I think I have a way that I kind of tie this into the conversation, too, because I did want, did want to go to the Miami Dolphins situation. So Emily Bazelon, you know, wrote this book, Sticks and Stones, uh, about the culture of bullying, and then, you know, as if they'd uh, timed it uh, to, to sort of spark a second conversation, uh, the Miami Dolphins were caught up in this scandal of bullying. Most of the bullying that you write about, it, does, it goes on in, in middle schools and high schools and elementary schools and youth sports and places like that. Uh, but this... This uh, culture of the Miami Dolphins offensive line that was revealed, particularly in this extensive report, which I think you called the best report on bullying you'd ever read or something like that. I mean, it's mirrored so closely the kinds of stuff that you're talking about, except that these are grown men. But it really seemed like the kind of textbook bullying that 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 you're writing about. I mean, just give us. How did you react to the revelations in the report, most of which we can't even talk about on the radio because they're so incredibly profane and horrible? Well, the reason I loved this document and think it's completely fascinating is that it gets at all the complexities of this relationship. And it really explains how Jonathan Martin could be a big, 
you know, 300 pound football player and be completely demeaned and degraded psychologically by a few of his teammates who essentially were ganging up on him, but also using the intimacy of a friendship that they had one-on-one against Martin when he was in front of the team. And so I, you know, again, it is hard to talk about this with all the curse words, but basically they were using the fact that they knew Martin and his weaknesses to figure out how to be racist and homophobic and aggressive in the way that would exactly drive him completely up the wall and really threaten his psychological stability. And so I finished the report completely understanding why he left the team, feeling upset with the locker room culture that makes it such a violation of the player's own code of ethics to to ask for help. And I think that's why he didn't report what Richie Incognito and a couple of others as other teammates were doing and why the Dolphins front office could say at the end, hey, we didn't know about this, even though there were coaches on the offensive line who did know and were participating in the bullying. I thought uh, in your analysis of it, one of the more poignant uh, stories that you told, sort of to get to the whole question of you know, why did Jonathan Martin not sort of put a stop to it earlier or somehow or other introduce a circuit breaker uh, to this sooner um, was uh, the story of this young boy who uh, was being taunted by, uh, by by people kind of in a similar way and, and was asked why he didn't just sort of walk away from them or, or just get, get as far away from them as he could or somehow or other cut them off. And he said, they know me. Um, which I think is sort of an interesting part of it. A verbal bullying. It t- tends to sort of prey not just on random things, but about some of your worst suppositions about yourself. Absolutely. They, you know, Incognito and his henchmen, they had Martin's number. And that boy who you're talking about who I'd interviewed in Lincoln, Nebraska, teachers were constantly saying to him, why don't you just walk away? And he would say, I try. But these other kids, the bullies, they know me. They know I'm going to lash out and retaliate and lose control eventually. So they keep coming after me. And I think we were seeing a similar dynamic between Incognito and Martin. And Martin felt like he had to just get away and break his ties to these people in order to end his part of the dynamic. We're going to take a little break right now. When we come back, I want to talk about about what happens when women cover this stuff and write about this stuff. I think all of our guests will have stories to tell. I want to leave some time for that. So we'll come back. Hey, come on now, let's play some sports. Play some sports. Play some sports now. Hey, come on now, let's play some sports. Play some sports. Play some sports now. Hey, let's play football. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Jay Nashley. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ben Jarvis Green Ellis. For articles, show pages, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff doing on-site kick drills with a rotisserie chicken, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, release the Kraken, a deep look at movie remakes. And now, back to Colin. So uh, we're talking about uh, football in particular, sports in general. We're talking with a group of women who uh, write about it and analyze it. Uh, and I want to spend some of this last segment just sort of talking about sort of the pushback uh, that comes when women write about it and analyze it. And Pam Ward, I want to start with you. I mean, you, you know, uh, mention was made of Jackie Robinson a little while ago. In some ways, you were a kind of Jack- Jackie Robinson doing play-by-play football coverage. Uh, I, I think you were really the first woman to do it on, on a major network, right? Uh, the first to do college, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I did it for uh, 11 years. Uh, Gail Searins did one NFL game 
back in the 80s and uh, as, as a one and done. But, yeah, I did it for 11 years. And and I'm just assuming that there were some people who just objected to you as a woman doing this, that, that there were guys who just had a problem with that whole idea. You would be correct in your assumption, <laughs> sir. Yes. And I was when I started doing it back in 19. Gosh, darn. It was it was uh, 2000, actually, was the first game I did. Mm. And uh, that I was still on staff at ESPN. So I could actually receive good old snail mail back then. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Some of the mail I got was uh, I learned very quickly never to open mail that doesn't have a return address on it <laughs> because those are the ones, the anonymous cowards who, you know, just slash into you. And then it and then it certainly segued now, and I'm sure everybody on this panel, the comment sections in uh, on the Internet or bloggers and things that they say, yes, so there were certainly objections. And, and what do you think the – I mean, if you were to sort of deconstruct or parse these objections, what do you think they really were? Were they just – completely gender-based women have no place here? Is that what the objection was? I would say 99% of it was that, yes. In yeah. fact, and some of them even said that, that you know, football is a male sport. You don't know anything about football. Like, men are born with this football gene that makes them know everything. Which uh, so yeah that was that was most of it and that was you know that was some of the kinder things that were said. Yeah, I mean, I you know getting ready for this, I was sort of unaware of a lot of this, but getting ready for this, I, I went online and looked at some of these things, and there's like one site called Awful Announcing where you really have been picked on. Um, and I've read Sticks and Stones. Uh, I uh, I recognize this language as the language of bullying, and these these people aren't even bullying you relatively anonymously. Some of them are bullying you with a byline. Uh, you know, they're actually taking credit for the. I mean, did did you feel bullied by this? I don't know. Bullied is the word. I I certainly felt uh, that it was picked on, and it got to the point where I I mean, when I first started doing it, I would read some stuff, and then I stopped reading it for, for I think for obvious reasons, and then some people would tell me some things that were going on, but I just uh, it's. You know, and it's not just me. I think it's something that is pervasive. Certainly, yeah. anybody who seems, and there are people like you know, like Brent Musburger has people who can't stand him. But there are different reasons, I guess, for that. But uh, yeah, it's just I, I just think it's it, the thing that I think bothers me a lot more about it is that uh, a lot of these people are given you know power because so many people want to talk about it. I w- was interviewed uh, after I stopped doing football a couple years ago by a very prominent sports uh, magazine and. And they and they asked the, the the writer asked me about it, and my my thinking is why do you care what these people are saying? And and by talking about it, and it, it almost gives them more power certainly than they deserve. I'm I'm just going to kind of go around the horn, as they say in sports, because I I feel like everybody on this show is had some experience of this. Um, and, and so Megan, uh, I'll go next to you. I'm I'm assuming. You got comment threads on your stories. You've got, I mean, are you getting basically the same thing that Pam Ward's talking about? Yeah, so I'm primarily an editor now, which means I get to be anonymous enough that I stay out of some of it. But I wrote a sports column for a while at a general interest magazine, and it was amazing to me how uncreative a lot of the comments were, um, especially in the age of Twitter, where it's very easy to be anonymous. Uh, People would say nothing more, they loved going back to get back in the kitchen. Literally, I did not know that that phrase existed outside of talking about the cliche, but it does. And so people would tweet that at me just on the regular. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, I'm going to save Emily for last for a couple of different reasons here. But um, Anissa, you're in sort of a different situation, but you are a woman writing a book about football, um, which meant that, first of all, you had to go and talk to a whole bunch of people uh, who are uh, heavily embedded in the world of football and then also get reactions. First of all, let me just say one thing about this book before I even ask you the question. This is Newton's Football, the Science Behind America's Game. As a, a, a longtime male football fan, there's like so much in this book that I didn't know about football. I mean, it's like on every page. There are revelations. So, this, I mean, it really is an amazing book in terms of just sort of informing you about a whole bunch of things that you just didn't know about or never considered. It's a great book. But was there a pushback? I mean, did you get any of the kinds of things that we're talking about here? Well, I de definitely echo with some of the things that we've been hearing. I mean, the thing that was unique for me is that I, I'm a scientist and I'm not a football fan. I grew up with football fans and I knew key words, but I didn't really watch and so, um, so I had to kind of come in uh, from being a, p a person that was a newbie. And there's some good and bad about that. Uh, being a scientist, you just have a different perspective. You don't kind of get into the whole ego thing of football. Mm -hmm. But I can definitely sense it. It's just that it's not important to me. So I can definitely see what these women are talking about in terms of how uh, there's a culture and it's really hard to, to get into it. Well, one of the things you write about, too, is that football is it's a lot of different things, but it's a system. And maybe one of the ways that it resists any kind of change is that it's a so tightly wrapped system that, that, that the people who are part of it feel as though if you pick away at one thread of it, all, other, all kinds of other parts may come unraveled. I agree. I think this is the chance where men get to be men, and having a woman in there just messes things up. I have a very short haircut. And where I go in the barbershop is an all-male barbershop. And when I go in, the buzz, the, the vibe completely changes because mm -hmm. this is the male country club. So I understand that, you know, this is their special space and they feel infringed upon. Uh, but, you know, if, if we have the commonality that we all love the game, that should be enough. I will add to that that, that um, sports journalism itself is seen as a boys' club a lot. And so I've heard not just from anonymous Neanderthals on the Internet, but also, you know, editors, sports, male sports editors, that they don't, they don't have an interest, I should say, if my boss is listening. This has never been true where I currently work, but that is absolutely true that women are distrusted not just by, you know, these guys on the Internet, but they're the sports journalism is itself a boys club and there are not nearly enough women that get hired into it and that is itself a problem. I think that's totally true. I just, one tiny little interjection. I will also say that if you are a male journalist and you ask the wrong kind of questions about sports culture, you'll get pushed back as well and, and certainly during the 90s when the whole Patriots coming to Hartford thing was on the table and I was asking too many questions. My own newspaper, the sports writers at my own newspaper, the Hartford Current did a, put in print that Bruce Armstrong should come and beat me up <laughs> Uh, to get me to stop asking these kinds of questions. So, um, Emily Bazelon, you know, reading some of your recent coverage about the NFL, I, I suddenly thought, well, I wonder what the Slate commenters are saying about Emily. So I clicked on the comment things, and I was I, I was actually pretty surprised because I think of the Slate readership as being maybe a little bit different from, say, you know, a, a sports readership, what it would be. And and at one point, your even your colleague John Dickerson had to be a knight in shining armor and ride his horse in and say, hey, shut up, you guys don't know what you're talking about you've never been inside an NFL locker room yourselves but were you surprised at the kind of pushback that you were getting on the kinds of coverage that you were doing no I'm never surprised <laughs> by anonymous commenters online and you know first of all I think that everybody here has it harder than I do because if you're really writing regularly inside a sports culture you're contending with just the basic sexism that 
Pam and Megan and Anissa were talking about. I just sort of show up periodically, make one point about bullying or sexual assault in football, and then hop back to my normal beats. But no, not, none of it surprises me, and I have two feelings about it. One is that if you're going to be an internet journalist, you have to develop a thick skin. And so if people make substantive criticisms that have real you know, thought behind them, I am happy to pay attention to them. But if it's mindless, if it's get back to the kitchen, if it's anything like that, I just ignore it. And I think that you need to do that in order to do this work and maintain your psychological health. So I really recommend that to other women and journalists generally as a way of dealing with trolls online. Although, you know, some of the comments uh, on your um, article about sort of sexual violence in football um and, and about the bullying. I think maybe the bullying one more. I mean, they really try to construct their own rationalizations for, for some of this stuff. I mean, it wasn't just shut up and get back to the kitchen. It was, to a startling degree, you don't, in some of the ways that, that Pam was talking about before, you just don't understand. You don't understand how essential this kind of culture, this repellent stuff that's in the report about the Miami Dolphins, how essential it is to the ethos uh, of this sport that you don't know nothing about, Emily Bazelon. Right. Well, I mean, I see that. I see that there's a real attachment to the way things are. And I think sometimes when the criticism comes from that point of view, there's a confusion about you don't understand versus you want something to change. It's not that I don't understand that locker rooms have relied on a lot of this crap for a long time. It's that I don't think it's okay. And I just don't believe that a workplace made up of adults needs to find camaraderie and solidarity in the stupidest, worst kind of middle school bonding and pranking. I just think football players are better than that and that we're going to get past this lowest common denominator kind of locker room culture to something else. And then I will not seem like a total crazy person. Although my sons would be the first to say that I really don't know anything about football as a game. Um, Pam, where does she write? Will we get past this? Oh, gosh. I I don't know. I, I'm probably maybe not that optimistic. I still think, because you, know, you go back to the Jonathan Martin thing, a lot of uh, a lot of people in, in football players, he was the bad guy yeah. because he ratted out his teammates. So I still think that there's, I still think there's a long way to go. And Megan, I'll give you the last word on it too. I mean, how much cha- you've seen some change in your relatively young career so far, but do you see a lot of change? I think for more change to happen, I'm going to go back to putting it on the journalists. Um, I think that sports journalism itself has a culture problem. And needs to be hiring a ton more women and people of color and people from different backgrounds generally. I mean, people like Pam, who were pioneers um, years ago, should no longer be, you know, some of the only ones. Um, There are entire sports publications that don't have a single woman on staff. So I think that if editors can be leaders in that way, that won't change the locker room culture, but that will start to change the culture of you don't know what you're talking about just because you happen to be a woman. Great point. We're going to end there. Thanks so much to Anissa Ramirez, uh, Emily Bazelon, Megan Greenwell, Pam Ward, all great guests. Tomorrow we'll be talking about movie remakes, which is mainly an excuse for me to yell, release the Kraken a lot until it really gets on your nerves. I'm Kyone Wolf reporting from the sidelines. Ray Hardman, number 53. What do you think was behind your team's success today? Well, 
I mean, aren't you going to ask me about my hair? It looks pretty good today. N- no, I want to know why your team did so well today. Well, well, what about my nails? They, they look great. I, I just had a manicure. Ugh. Back to you in the studio.